and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Our guest today is Matt Streisfeld, a general partner at Oak HCFT. Oak is a venture and growth equity firm investing in companies driving transformation in healthcare and fintech. Oak was one of the earliest venture investors in fintech and now has over $5 billion in assets under management. Matt joined Oak in 2015 and was recently named as one of Insider's rising stars in venture capital. In today's episode, we discuss the M&A environment for fintechs, opportunities in AI and machine learning, and how Matt thinks about identifying winners in what is increasingly becoming a crowded space, the outlook for digital assets, and much more. Hi, Matt. We're excited to have you here today. To start with, it'd be great if you could tell our listeners a bit about what you do at Oak. Thanks, Kaylee. Um, So Oak is a multi-stage growth equity fund focused solely on healthcare and fintech. Um, we started it in 2014, uh, by three founders, Annie Lamont, Andrew Adams, and, and Trisha Camp, uh, who was spun out of a company called Oak Investment Partners. And at the time it was one of the largest, um, first issuance, you know, funds, $500 million first bond. Since then, over the last eight years, almost nine years, uh, we've raised five funds, about 5.3 billion under management and really play across the spectrum. Uh, from seed to pre-IPO stage companies in and around both healthcare and fintech side. And one topic I'd love to talk about today is the outlook for fintech in 2023 and beyond. So Oak seems bullish on fintech overall. What sectors do you think will continue to grow and what sectors do you think will find it more challenging in the current climate? So it's it's a great question for a couple of different reasons. So one, like, Fintech has traditionally been defined as like the verticals. You've got like payments, banking, lending, capital markets, asset management, insurance. But like simplistically speaking, fintech has evolved to really being like the horizontally delivering financial services or like driving a financial like driving a financial outcome via like software. So what what I say of that is like if you think about like vertical SaaS, for example. You've got your system of records, you've got your workflow and automation tools, you've got your customer onboarding, fraud identity verification, embedded payments, all wrapped under one umbrella. You know, 10 years ago, that would not have been factored into fintech. Today, I would say every, nearly every fintech investor would call that fintech. And I say that because where we're really bullish is how the evolution of like financial services are being delivered and who the customers that's absorbing those financial services. And so when you think about, broadly speaking, vertical software, you think about um, uh, the embedded financial services infrastructure, you think about commerce infrastructure, fraud, identity verification, authentication. uh, These are like horizontal models that are applicable to businesses that don't just look like traditional fintechs, but are actually emerging companies or SMBs that need to be absorbing um, financial services. And those are like what's really, really interesting to us. You know, the areas that I think are the most concerning or I think have the most uh, work to be done is think around like more like the consumer fintech, particularly those that are single-threaded applications, you know, that may be focused on banking accounts or Investment products, I just think that those will struggle to acquire customers, differentiate in proposition and scale efficiency, efficiently long term. 
unless they come up with their act twos and act threes and that's really absorbed and uh, consumed by their end customer. How do you think that will play out in the landscape? Do you think we'll see a lot of consolidation there where only a few sort of companies are able to win? I um, think there will be some consolidation. I think if you you know historically look at so the aftermath of, of 98 to 2099 and then even sort of post the great financial crisis, there was always a period of aggregation of capital, deaggregation or deceleration of capital, and then consolidation. And uh, consolidation happens pre-massive waves of growth and then happens post-massive waves, uh, you know, deceleration of, of that growth. And so I think we're at this period of the wave where uh, M&A will take sort of the forefront of, of organic growth strategies. And I think those single threaded applications will be absorbed by those that are looking to diversify their product portfolios. Makes sense. I'd love to hear more about what you think the M&A environment for fintechs will look like over the next couple of years. It's, it's kind of twofold. It's like on one hand, I think there's going to be a massive opportunity on the acquisition side for you know, the, growth, the growth funded companies that have, have grown and have achieved pretty good scale and maybe has the profitable underlying unit economics, profitable actually aggregate businesses, maybe they're kind of breaking, losing a bit of money. And I think there will be a combination of public, private, and even private and privates that think one plus one could equal three. And, and I'm thinking about this purely from the B2B and the infrastructure side of it, that will create a, a catalyst for acquisitions. I think on the second side of it is you have actually some really great companies that have gone public in 2020, 21, that I, I hate to use the word orphaned in the public environment, but they're certainly depressed. And I'll give you an example, it's like mid-pandemic, the public fintech companies, when I'm saying public fintech companies, I'm thinking payments, B2B, SaaS, and lending. The forward revenue multiple for those companies was trading at like 12.7x. Hosts you know, pandemic, those companies came down and the median subs, the median valuations of that same subset is now 2.9. So you have actually this degradation of multiples of around 77%, 78%. Um, and you'd say like, well, what, what's the other catalyst for this? So, so growth has decreased over 50% for those businesses. And look, instead of it growing at 50 to hundred percent, maybe they're growing at somewhere between 15 to 30%. And historically, like those stable businesses that are growing 20, 30% and profitable and succeed the rule of 40, like are really good public stage companies. But regardless of that, like they just don't have enough maturity in the public markets, their stock price is down, you have employer retention issues. I, I think there will be an opportunity to those companies will either decide to go private, there'll be consolidation, maybe, you know, a, a public to public type of acquisition. But there's some really great companies that are out there with valuations that don't necessarily match like historical fundamentals, which means that either something has to change to get the fundamentals right, or to create the most shareholder value, there will probably have to be a change of control. Is there anything that stands out to you in contrast between this most recent boom bust cycle in 2021, 2022 versus the cycles that fintech has gone through in the past? So I think of fintech like if you think about like the fintech cycles, like you think about like 
there's actually been more of an evolution of how the product has evolved and um, who the end customer is more so. Like I think FinTech 1.0, everyone would say is like, was around changing uh, consumer behavior, adopting a better UI, creating the better customer journey and and just being uh, a better, you know, customer facing solution than historical FIs. Now that has worked to a degree, but I think the rate of, let's say like where, for example, like AI and technology is going to evolve will enable those FIs to, to catch up. So like FinTech 1.0, the, 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 uh, the abundance and the improvement of the customer journey, FinTech 2.0 is really around the improvement in the infrastructure and shifting from legacy solutions and a legacy infrastructure to more modernized solution, more scalability, greater modality. Uh, yeah, you've got more graph relationships. Um, you know, that dynamics that you can create a better relationship between the end customer and the company delivering the service. That being said, sitting here thinking about the 3.0, I go back to like that existing example, which is like, every, I think financial services become increasingly more horizontalized. One thing to add, you had you know a new true product offering, you know BNPL, which has been around for you know some years, and back to like the you know bill me now and pay acquisition by PayPal. But you know you have a firm, and you had Sezzle and 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 integrated Carnot sort of internationally. You had these companies that were priced at 20, 30, 40x revenue multiples, and because they were viewed as greater, like more like payments businesses and however like that boom ended up creating a, a massive downfall in public valuations because they end up reverting back to what they're perceived as consumer fintech companies and if you go back to like the original like 1.0 and lending club and and p2p you know those are companies that were trading at 10 15x you know forward revenue multiples i think came back down to one to two x because they were perceived to be different than at one point and then looked at on a, on a more of a historical or traditional basis. And I think that's like a really interesting component of like what we've been seeing in this, in this cycle is like, you have these new, really great, you know, FinTech companies, but they've been perceived and reverted back to like a, a something that, you know, an investor could uh, relate to, like taking a firm, which really has created tremendous consumer awareness, merchant awareness. Uh, it's also true pain point is a alternative payment schema, um, but is now being looked at as a consumer, you know, lending business, which I just think is misunderstood. And I think that is fundamentally an example of like what's been happening in these, in these cycles. The other thing that we're actually seeing too, is like uh, the PSPs and the merchant acquirers that were trading at 10 plus X multiples are now reverting back to historical means of, you know, anywhere from two to five X, you know, revenue. And I think, that also shifts not just the public markets, but also impacts the private markets and how we perceive uh, payments and payment infrastructure businesses. And I think that will be interesting. Those are the two areas where in the next five years, like to see how multiples change. And when you're thinking about investments, in your view, what are some of the most promising opportunities in fintech at the moment? If you think about like where the shift and the ability to like build software you know, new capabilities for uh, probabilistic like computing. You think about like quant like quantitative like outputs. Like there's so much more data and so much more 
shifts in like the underlying techniques of of where we're going from like like the broader AI space that these models and these the the models that we're training data on as well as the ability to build better software faster is growing at an exponential rate. So when I say that, like, and going back to like the FinTech 1.0 and the FinTech 2.0, there's still a lot of like Fuji processes that exist within the financial services ecosystem. There's still a lot of sort of uh, inertia in terms of changes and processes. And I think <clears throat> there will be this technological shift that reduces more of that inertia and is going to reduce a lot of that, the lack of sort of automation and the lack of innovation that's happening from a processing standpoint. And I know that may sound like a little generic, but what I think you're actually seeing is every single business model and financial services is going to go through some type of evolution. And it's not saying, hey, a company that was built 10 years ago is going to be disrupted by the next company in the next 10 years. I actually think the companies that have been built in the last 10 years that have great customer relationships and traction are going to continue to evolve and grow at a pretty attractive clip because the moat that they've created has been on the customer side. The contrast is they're building off of legacy systems, but I think technology will enable them to remove their legacy systems and build on more modernized solutions. And again, I think we want to be, we want to be playing in a space where we're providing like the pixels and shovels to the FIs or to the emerging uh, enterprises or to the SMBs that need that technology, those technology solutions to offer better product to their customers. And it really does stretch across those horizontals that I was referring to earlier. And you've been involved in a few sort of AI-focused fintechs at Oak, from leading Oak's exit of Pagaya Technologies to sitting on the board of Just. What has excited you about these companies and in a world where it seems like everyone's trying to do AI and ML at the moment, what makes a new fintech stand out? It's a great question because like, you know, those, those are companies that are not just advanced in their learnings and their capabilities and their data sets and the number of uh, data parameters that are input into their models. But it's like, more importantly, the way they've actually approached their markets, you know, raising their hands. And saying like, hey, like we want to help you and customer or end partner, like, and we want to do it in the right way. And so when you think about AI in financial services, like you, there's there's a there's there's gonna be a lot of pushback if you've got like the quote unquote black box. Though like the like what we get excited about is actually the, the like the total opposite. It's like we can help solve really important issues for you using AI technology to predict outcomes, you know, using like majority voting prompts, using you know, models that are enabling, you know, billions of data parameters. And, you know, not just that, it's also decision trees and stack ranking, um, probabilistic outcomes. Like all those things are helpful to the underlying customers to say like, hey, listen, we really have ways to help you drive a better result. And I think that's where it gets super exciting around where we're at, because like this technology requires billions of data points and individuals that know how to make the machines work. And so companies like Pagaya and Just are in a position to say like, hey, you have great partner. Like we want to help you and we want to like enable you to benefit here. And that I think is where there's just so much opportunity. What's one of the most exciting uses of generative AI that you've seen so far? We're still early innings here, right? And so I think the vertical application 
of the generative generative AI capabilities. And then you think about like quantitative analysis. And I'm thinking about like where we're at, like with Minerva or Palm and sort of new techniques that sort of complement like GPT-4. Um, you know, you've got the ability to train data sets like with NLP plus like quantitative uh, reasoning or deduction. It's like to determine better outputs. Like, like I'll give you a good example. Like there's a degree in which generative AI is helpful to advancing or improving the outcome. But there's also like financial services where you need to have um, a deterministic outcome. Like it has to be 100% right. It's like uh, in, in the healthcare space, like, I can't give you a diagnosis that feels right or like seems right. It has to be like the right diagnosis. In financial services, it's the same thing. It's like, I can't tell you that I think you have $1,000 in your bank account. Like you have to have $1,000 in your bank account, right? Especially when it comes to money and what it means to individuals. So one model doesn't do it all. And so I, I say that because like what's really, really exciting is we're still at those early use cases to getting from getting closer and closer to deterministic outcomes. And the new models that are being built, not just on text and like NLP like based models that are like based off of text and images, but really getting into quantitative analysis, like what's being built off Minerva that will help us take like the content plus the quantitative assessment to drive like the next generation of outputs. Are there any emerging companies or specific areas that you're most excited about? Um, I, I look, I, this is, I'm biased. I, you know, I think I'm biased because we've invested with them for about four rounds, but you know, Pagaya, for example, is still super early innings of where they are from the, the, the data sets and the uh, ability to to use AI to generate better credit decisioning and outcomes and their ability to build this network of buyers and partners to originate more loans. It's better for the underlying consumer or the underlying customer. It's great for the partners and it's great for those that like to buy those loans, which is a, a, a world that has existed for decades and um, will continue to exist. And so the ability to do greater matching and to uh, you know, build that network connectivity is, is, is fascinating. And if you look at any other public information, like they're, they're, they're explaining more and more about what they're doing to the underlying market because of, they want to be incredibly transparent with, with how they use AI and how it benefits you know, the end, end customer, their partners, and the buyers of these loans. And again, I just think it's, it's, it's early days. And generative AI also brings new risks such as increased risk of fraud. How do you think this will play out and how will fintechs need to adapt? It's a, it's a great question. And I think, frankly, nobody knows, but it's a really, it, it's a great opportunity as well. So give you an example. So there's, we, we're seeing in, in some of our companies that uh, you can build better rules to um, file chargebacks for both, you know, you know, at the at the merchant level, um, for e-commerce purchases, which is uh, the question is: Is it friendly fraud or is it legitimate fraud? And the ability to distinguish and differentiate and process that inflow 
is actually a quite daunting challenge. Like A, the burden lies on the merchant who doesn't really have the time or effort, or the, the time or you know capabilities to handle it. Even large merchants that you think of like the likes of like, oh, not to pick on anyone, but like a Target or a Walmart or a Wayfair, like they have significant chargeback issues, but that are handled probably in-house. That being said, like having, you know, a solution that is able to accelerate that process because fraud is more rampant and fraud looks newer. It looks different. Um, we haven't seen so much of this, this same fraud because it's actually coming from, um, you know, it's being pushed from a, you know, either, you know, from a generative capability, which means like we're getting more volume or it looks differently than historical models. Like for every, you know, challenge creates a new opportunity. And I think that's, you know, kind of a unique aspect. Um, the other area around this is synthetic fraud, right? We've, you know, you're, we know that where AI can shift voice and shift image and um, act sim more similarly to, or look similarly to something that is real because it, it is real, but in a different construct. And that's going to create a lot more identity um, fraud that's going to affect commerce, going to affect banking or affect payments. Uh, frankly, it could affect um, insurance claims. I mean, it could affect literally the legitimacy of um, of all financial services. And financial services incumbents have gotten a major boost with GPT four and other open source software. In this, in your view, does this hurt startups with tech moats? Um, I think it does to a degree, right? I think it it, it definitely and shrinks the innovation gap. Um, but I don't think it like I don't think it. Yeah, I, I don't think it means, hey, the incumbents are going to remain the incumbents and win. But I do think it means, hey, that nimbleness and that ability to focus on execution uh, needs to be prioritized in the focus and it and, and needs to be done efficiently because like that tandem can outperform, you know, corporate implementation and corporate delivery and 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 regulatory bureaucracy for lack of better words that exists in these organizations and so um the there's there will be a unique you know push pull you know i think a, a push pull sort of threshold here in the next handful of years as incumbents are ramping and scaling up faster but you know the emerging emerging companies offering these solutions are are, are competing but also accelerating because of their nimbleness and switching gears a little bit Digital assets have gained traction in recent years. What areas of crypto and blockchain do you think are most investable? So what's fascinating about this space is if you separate between DeFi and CFI and everything that's happening in and around of the broader digital infrastructure space, a lot of the pain points that we're seeing in financial services and the financial um, and the broader fintech universe are applicable and truly mirror what's happening in the, the crypto and blockchain space. So fraud is a huge issue. Um, the ability to issue, settle, transfer um, payments, you know, particularly around using stable coins, where you've got a digital currency that needs to be exchanged with fiat and vice versa. Um, friction that may exist with um, FX. Like those are real tangible pain points that as those business, you know, as those industries, as those markets expand, like 
stablecoin usage for payments is only going to accelerate. Fraud as a result is only going to accelerate. And those are maybe like a little bit like less sexy of ideas in around the space, but they're really going to be critical to the success of that ecosystem. Um, okay. I think other areas that we just, we, we, I think we've talked about it broadly. We're just like, look, DeFi has worked, you know, vis-a-vis CeFi, especially in the wake of some of those bankruptcies that we've seen and the collapses in the market. And like, what, what I think is, is, is very promising is like, it's, it's not an if, but more of a when of like when chain oracles and scaling, like improve like DeFi as like a viable alternative payment, um, or finance networks. And so it's like that, I think is the part that becomes incredibly, uh, exciting. I think there just needs to be increasingly more trust in the decentralized offering of financial services. Um, and that takes time, but that will uh it, it's proven that it's worked at least at the current scale what do you think the path forward for these areas look like like i guess what sort of time horizon do you think we're looking at and how would you expect it to play out sorry hard question <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a it's a great question and if i had the answer i i know uh both myself and oak would be incredibly successful um as we're as we're thinking through this like i think um it's unclear if if this happens in the next sub two years i think though between the next you know i think between two and five years is where it actually happens i don't think it takes 10 years for the full market to catch up but i think there is still going to be enough regulatory overhang and particularly until we get through an election an election cycle in 24 where there'll be real uh insight into the oversight um where that would open up the opportunity to to get out of the winter that we're in. But the promise and the applicability of this technology and what it does and how it's supposed to better serve, like, you know, transform the financial services ecosystem, like, applies. Um, everyone that was excited about it two years ago should still be excited about it. But adoption is important and increasing capabilities, like, you know, accelerating like TPS, for example, needs to improve. But those are things that will happen and one will uh, inform the other, inform the other, and then you'll have a snowball effect where I think over the next two to five years, you'll have a much broader adoption here. And in this space, are there any areas that you're wary of? In a broad schema, like anything that touches the, the regulatory you know, environment is, is I have to be concerned about. So meaning uh, if you're a layer one or a layer two and you've got a... Uh, you're building a really unique protocol, but the there's a token associated with it. And does the token generate the value for the protocol or does the protocol create the value for the token? And what I mean by that is like, if you think about the tolls and you think about network fees, it's like if your token is just a, um, a derivative of the revenue streams that the protocol generates because of being on a toll or a network fee, like, I don't believe that should be viewed as a, a security. And you know, especially if that's not necessarily purely tradable, but really more of an asset that's associated with the 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 revenue streams of the underlying protocol. Like that's exciting. I think where you get into the issue is like if that token looks and feels like a security, uh, I, I it's it's just a hard thing to be investing in until there's actually greater insight from from the regulators. But hopefully there will be greater clarity much very soon. 
I feel like people have been saying that for a while, but yes. <laughs> they, 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 they have, and I think that's part of the problem. And I think that's why we're where we're at from a market standpoint is because I think we have been saying this for a while. I'd also like to hear a bit about your personal philosophy on fintech investing. So what makes a great fintech investment in your opinion? So I, it's a great question because I, I view this as, again, because of Oak, we very much focus on like B2B and B2B2C. And, and, and historically, my, like for the majority of my career, I've been focusing on that same, those two same areas. So when I think about what makes a great fintech investment, I think about it as like you're truly solving a financial pain point. Like that's, you know, at, at a bit, something that's maybe a 5x better than what existed today. And it's not just the consumer ex- or customer experience or like the technology advantage. It's like really trying to solve the financial services relationship with that end customer at a 5x better, you know, rate. And for all the aspiring VCs, who might be interested in a role, like what do you look for and what would you consider sort of table stakes versus something that you'd be willing to coach for? So I think like critical analysis um, or critical thinking, judgment, your critical analysis and thinking are critical. But I also think uh, judgment of talent is, as we've just seen cycle after cycle, the ability to truly judge talent um, is the differentiator between companies that are, are excellent and those that, that may not be great outcomes. And so when I'm interviewing individuals, I'm always asking a question, not for like what I think is like right or wrong answer, but to truly assess their critical thinking and, of the situation and, and providing his or her analysis of how they came to some outcome. So in my mind, and I've said this, uh, you know, I say this to my team all the time, like if you just work really hard and you want to learn, like I'm willing to coach. And, and, I'll, and I'll take that for lack of domain expertise any day. Um, it's really about showing and demonstrating like critical thinking and uh, that effort to learn and, and to want to become a great fintech investor or investor in general. Makes sense. Um, and we'd like to end with a quick lightning round of some short responses from you. So firstly, what's your top book recommendation? Barbarians at the Gate. That was quick. You knew that. <laughs> you knew you were going to say that. Um, what's an emerging company that you're really excited about? Uh, Hino Platform, which is one of our uh, portfolio companies that's 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 building a modern issuing payments provider that's offering credit issuing and eventually getting into acquiring issuing and bringing together what we call on us processing, which has been tried but not quite successfully yet. And this is the team that will be able to, to execute on that. And any suggestions for content for someone looking to learn more? Honestly, despite the acquisition, Credit Suisse's research on the payments and fintech space is excellent. And so Credit Suisse has a, a payments and fintech themes primer. And I suggest everyone read it. Um, and it comes out on an annual basis and it will really, really help you think about like quantitative assessments of fintech companies, um, especially over the long term. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our FinTech community, 
please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello. Thank you.